with you. Our text today is John chapter 11. We're stepping out of our series in 1 Thessalonians to continue to grieve as a congregation of God's people. If you're visiting Wallace, we were shocked, to say the least, on Monday to learn of the sudden passing of one of the covenant sons of this church family. Surprised, to put it mildly, at this frowning and bewildering providence. How do we make sense of it? One way is to meet Jesus in his deep sorrow. We see the man Jesus most sorrowful, really, in his earthly ministry at the tomb of a friend, Lazarus, which is recorded in John chapter 11. The text moves through a series of surprises. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his resurrection, which came as a complete surprise to them. So let's look at this text and understand how God uses surprise, if not shock, in our lives to comfort us and to fill us with a living and vibrant hope. Somebody took my Bible. I need my large print Bible because I can't see it. Let's see. Help, Lord. (laughs) No, I need the whole text. Is that it, David? That's a large print Bible. Good. Thank you, brother. Surprise. I got the surprise today. (laughs) Thank you, brother. Surprise number one, Jesus delays, John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Martha who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Two details in the narrative create the unexpected. Twice we're told Jesus loved Lazarus. And verse 6 says Jesus deliberately stays two days longer in the place where he was to let Lazarus die. You would expect Jesus upon hearing the news to immediately leave and go to the one he loved and heal him of his sickness. Do we know why Jesus delayed? Indeed we do. Verse 4. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified for it. Now realize you, the reader, get that detail. Martha and Mary do not. 
But this is totally unsurprising because everything Jesus does is for his Father's glory. So his life is all about. In fact, if you've ever wondered, what is God like? You knew this world didn't come to pass through chance. You believe there's some force or person out there. You wondered, what is God like? The answer to that question is Jesus. Jesus Christ is on earth making visible, making tangible the invisible God. He is revealing to us the glory of God. So, beloved, what is it you do when your plans are not materializing like you would expect when God is delaying what you seem to have promised from him? What should you do? Keep praying. Keep trusting. Keep obeying. And learn to reason from the greater to the lesser. The Bible teaches us to reason from the greater to the lesser. If God is so good to go to the cost and the expense of revealing himself to you by sending his son to earth, then there's nothing good God will withhold from you. This is the way Paul reasons in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So those of you who have been grieving deeply this week, that is your experience. You're grieving. You can't do anything but grieve and sorrow and weep and wonder. The Bible says, yes, grieve and gently wrap your grieving in remembering. Remember who God is. Remember what he has done. Remember what he promises. Remember what he will do. Surprise number two, Jesus risks going. Verse seven, then after this, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Do you get the picture? The disciples have fled Jerusalem for their own safety. The leaders are seeking Jesus to kill him. And Jesus says, let's go back. What? Go back into the danger zone? What's Jesus' reason? He basically says, the daylight is the time to walk and to work. 
we do what we're supposed to do in the day, the 12 hours of daylight. Jesus is saying, beloved, I am filling up my days with the work my Father gave me to do. I am principally on earth to raise the dead. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I am safe as long as I'm in my Father's will. Are you? Of course. Resist wondering what might be God has appointed works for you to walk in today, beloved. Trust him with the results. You see an amazing, surprisingly wonderful picture of such trust in Thomas. Thomas basically says, Jesus is calling us back to go with him to Jerusalem, and we're going to get killed with Jesus. Sweetie, tremendous courage. Where did it come from? His courage is born of a profound loyalty to Jesus. I'm envious of that loyalty. Where do you think Thomas developed such life-giving loyalty to Jesus? Listening to him. Being with him. It's what we have the privilege in this free country of exercising every morning and all day long. Being with Jesus. Listening to Jesus. Reading his word. Asking him to continue to reveal himself to us without ceasing. The difference between Thomas and Jesus is Jesus indeed will die alone. He will die forsaken, die friendless. You never will if you belong to Jesus. Death may feel like the loneliest thing on earth, but if you're Jesus' friend, you belong to Jesus, the moment you fall asleep, you awake in the presence of pure glory. Surprise number three. Jesus guarantees now your final acceptance at the final judgment. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. In biblical uh, times, that meant he's dead, dead. Four days is dead, dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha is one of those out there personalities. She meets Jesus at the edge of town. What would you say to Jesus if you knew 
Jesus got the word your brother was dying. You knew Jesus had the power and the desire to heal him. And you knew Jesus deliberately delayed coming for the healing. What would you have said to Jesus? Probably what Martha said. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Is that true? Absolutely that's true. An expression of faith, if not a veiled rebuke. Where you been, Lord? Her words are amazingly ambiguous, as is Jesus' response. What's his response? Your brother will rise again. Masterfully planned ambiguity. And Martha responds with what I think is an apparent undertone of dissatisfaction. I think she's basically saying, you know, I would really rather have my brother back for a few more decades to enjoy on this earth. This is a wound I will live with till I die. But if you say so, yes, I believe in the final resurrection. As every Bible-believing Jew would. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. The earth will give birth to departed spirits. Prediction, a foreshadowing of the final resurrection. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Jesus takes these prophecies, this doctrine, and he fills it with surprising glory. I am the resurrection and the life. In my being is indestructible life. I am the one in whom God raises the dead. I have the power to give it to whoever asks for it. And what's the proof? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The grave couldn't hold him. And Jesus Christ offers you the same indestructible power. To believe in Jesus Christ is to be born anew, to have that life in you now, so that the moment you stop breathing on this earth, you are translated in indestructible life to the presence of God. And on the last day, your body will be filled with indestructible life. You'll live in a body that will never die on a renewed earth forever. The raising of Lazarus is a parable of Jesus' life-giving power. You think this is amazing? If you trust Jesus, you will be raised the moment you die. Your body will be raised in indestructible flesh in the new heavens and the new earth. Surprise number five. Yes, I can count. I have skipped four on purpose. <laughs> Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! It was loud. I had to do that. This man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he had did, believed him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. First, let's affirm what is not surprising. It is not surprising that Jesus raised a dead man. Every single funeral he ran into, he stopped and raised the dead. It is not surprising that Jesus stops and prays spontaneously for his Father to be glorified again. That is the deepest passion of his life, the glory of his Father. And it's not surprising that the mere word of Jesus brought back a dead man to life. From the beginning of creation, God has been speaking things into existence that did not exist. He is the God who creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. That should not surprise us. One of the clearest visions and pictures of this in the Old Testament is Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones in chapter 37. There you see these dry bones. It's nothing but bones. All the prophet does is speak, and the word of God is performative to bring life where it never existed. He speaks, and all the bones are raised and have life in them. What is surprising is the muted and mixed reviews. I say muted because we hear nothing in the story from Martha, Mary, or Lazarus. Do you think they processed this verbally after the fact? <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> Not a word. One of my favorite Bible commentators, D.A. Carson, explains it this way. Everything, he writes, is sacrificed to the sign itself, our attention is to be caught up on the glory of Jesus as the life giver. And you know, that forces me to think about my own heart. What in my life is distracting me from Jesus' glory and life-giving grace? What's distracting me from it? Why do I lack a passion for an unbridled pursuit of the glory of Jesus in all that I think, do, and say. What's distracting you? It's an inferior glory. Ask Jesus to show you those things and to deliver you from them. What are the mixed reviews? We're told in verse 45, many believed in him. That's not surprising. What is terribly surprising is verse 46, some of the people standing there and go to the Pharisees to squeal on Jesus for raising a dead man. This becomes a cause for hunting down God to kill him. I don't get that. But I don't get my unbelief and hardness of my own heart either in view of the evidence. Last surprise. Surprise number four. Jesus wept. So we're looking at verse 30 to 37. Now, Jesus has not come 
had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, as her sister had a few minutes earlier, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And you can imagine in the house, that's all they're talking about. If only he'd been here. If only he'd been here. If only he'd been here. Right? That's... Now when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Some of the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? Verse 33. Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The verb for deeply moved in spirit means to snort with anger. Pardon me, but something like this. You can't get any anger angrier than snorting with anger. The verb for troubled means to shake. I don't know of any place in the Gospels we see Jesus so psychologically undone. Maybe Gethsemane. But he is angry, he is shaking, and he wept. Not crocodile tears. He is bawling, bawling his eyes out. He's standing in the shadow of his friend's tomb. Is this surprising? A little bit, because Jesus knows in about 90 seconds... He's going to raise this man from the dead. And nonetheless, all this sheer, raw emotion. So why is Jesus angrily weeping? Why not show up as I would at the side of the, at the, side of the funeral and say, chill, everybody relax, I'm going to do a miracle, sit back, watch, I'm just going to boom. Just every... No, it's not what Jesus does. So I want to ask as we finish the sermon why is Jesus grieved and snorting with anger? First reason, he lost a friend. He lost a friend. Jesus is a man full of sympathy, full of compassion. When he sees Mary and Martha weeping, their friends weeping, it is like a sledgehammer that hits his heart and outpours this emotion. Jesus knows humanly we were not meant to be knit together as parents and children and friends and husband and wife and have ourselves ripped apart by death. It's not supposed to be that way. Jesus hates that. Deeply moved by the loss of a friend. Jesus is acquainted with grief, beloved, and he identifies with you in all of your losses. All of your losses. Second reason he is snorting with anger and grieved. He's angry at death. Jesus is standing in the shadow of a tomb. 
He hates death. It angers him. Death is not natural to the world his father created that he created. There was nothing poisonous, nothing, no hint of death, nothing ugly, no disease, no evil, no sorrow in the world he created. It is not supposed to be this way. No one dies of natural causes. They always die of unnatural causes because death is so unnatural to the world Jesus created. But see, it isn't death itself that's the problem. Jesus is angry at the reason there is death in his pristine world. And what's the reason? Sin. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that death entered the world through sin. And it's the thought of sin being in God's perfect world that angers Jesus. Sin no longer belongs in this world than toxic waste in your kitchen. Jesus is overcome with the fact that the, that the couple God first created, Adam and Eve, he created them to enjoy and love God's presence. And they basically spit in God's face and said, we can find a greater glory than you on our own. This infuriates Jesus, and it should you and me as well. He hates that sin is in the world. Sin bumps God aside from his rightful place of reigning and ruling and getting all the glory. Sin kills the glory for which you and I are created. And finally, Jesus trembles at the, thought, at, at, uh, at, at the tomb because he's thinking of his own tomb. He's thinking of his own tomb, but right, no, no. It's really not the tomb that's the problem per se. It's what? It's the path from where he is standing now to his tomb. And that pathway is through the cross. Jesus is becoming undone psychologically, overcome, shuddering, snorting with anger, weeping because he is anticipating the excruciating pain, psychological, physical, and spiritual, of his cross he will be unjustly treated by his countrymen, deserted by his friends, his physical body torn to shreds, beloved, and worst of all, on the cross, facing the wrath of his precious Father. Suffering unspeakable, unimaginable torments of body and soul for bearing the sins of his people. But, beloved, that is not the end of the story his father accepted his death on behalf of his precious people, those he was saving. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Jesus is saying in every funeral, it looks like death had the last word. There's no undoing that death. There's no undoing it. And Jesus said, oh, I have the final word. I have the final word. Come forth. Jesus will raise those who have died in him immediately to his glorious presence. Jesus will raise your body on the last day, all he needs to say is, come forth. He is the risen Lord of life. And beloved, he is calling every one of you today to come forth. Every one of you he is calling. He is in this room now, in this text, calling you to come forth. Don't you see, we're all like Lazarus in the tomb. Our sins have killed the glory for which God made us. And I want to suggest that there's several different kinds of people in the room today. Some of you have struck a bargain with God. 
You're in the tomb and you basically said, if you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And it means the glory that is being spoiled by your sin for which you were made, you are seeking to get that glory in some other thing in this life. And I want to ask you, is it really satisfying you? Is it really setting you free to be a magnificent person? What are you living for to undo the unpleasantness of living in a tomb, I guess is the question. And I suspect it's leaving you with some pain and angst and sorrow. Have courage to admit it. But here's the point. If you saw the beauty of Jesus, if you knew his love, you would forsake those things and come out and welcome him into your life. He's calling you to himself today. He's calling you to come out of the tomb. Aren't you miserable there? Look upon the loveliness and the beauty, the grace of Jesus. Secondly, some of you are trying to manage life in the tomb by being good. You know God calls you to a good lifestyle, and you go to church, you give, you support missionaries, you pray, you keep the Ten Commandments. You're dressing up the tomb, as it were, with all your best efforts. But they're not enough. You can't come out from that tomb and face the presence of a holy God because a holy God will find your sin and good works can't cover your sin. And when a holy God finds sin, it must be punished. It must be judged. Beloved, you have to forsake those things. And how are you going to face a holy God? And that's the third type of person in the room. You have found Jesus. You are, surprise, surprised, hidden in another. Christianity is the religion of the substitute. Somebody else has to do it for you. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to bear the wrath God has for your sins so that if you run to God and say, I want to live you with you forever, and you are hidden in Jesus, you can be assured the Father punished Jesus on the cross for your sins. And the moment you trust him, you can be assured Jesus will clothe you in his perfect righteousness so that when you run to God, hidden in Jesus, your father sees the righteousness of his son and is absolutely and forever and totally accepted. He accepts you perfectly. This is the gospel of grace. Jesus does it in our place. And it is surprisingly simple. Doesn't Jesus say to Martha, do you believe this? These gifts of righteousness, this gift of forgiveness, this gift of acceptance before God, it's a gift. All you can do is receive it. It's that simple. Trust it. Believe it. He gives it to all who ask. Won't you ask today to know him who is the resurrection and the life? One last little detail. (laughs) We've Those of us who've come out of the tomb, do we still have the grave cloths on our face and are we kind of still bound up from the ravages of living for ourselves in a sinful lifestyle? What a privilege to come alongside each other and help with those things. Take them off, unbind the wrappings, walk together, continue to point each other and say, you know, that lifestyle, that's, that lifestyle, it didn't get you anything good. And point each other to Jesus who is surprisingly forgiving, surprisingly gracious, 
unsurpassingly merciful. Let's, let's point each other to his glory as together we unwrap the ravages of death and seek to promote life in one another's lives. Let's pray. Do you believe this? What a question. Work, Holy Spirit, in every one of our hearts? Yes, I believe it. Why wouldn't I believe Jesus conquered my sin on the cross and conquered death on the third day? We worship the resurrection and the life. Give us this life. And for those of us who have it, may we nurture it in one another with tender, loving, patient, compassionate care to the glory of our Savior. And in his name we pray. Amen.